I'm Hayley Jane Sims. And I'm Kate Bradbury. And this is your Manchester Stories. Professor Tony Payton graduated with a BSc in Electrical Engineering and Electronics in 1983 and a PhD in Medical Instrumentation in 1986. After various positions in the scientific instrumentation industry and academia, he was appointed Professor in Electromagnetic Engineering in May 2004. Dr. Liam Marsh is a lecturer in Embedded Systems based in the Department of Electrical and Electronic Engineering at the University of Manchester. Liam graduated with a Master's of Engineering in Electrical and Electronic Engineering from UMIST in 2007. He received his PhD from the University of Manchester in 2011. Since this time, his research interests have included many aspects of metal detection and metal characterization applied to fields such as humanitarian demining, security, and polar surveying. Landmines, improvised explosive devices, and other explosive remnants of war still contaminate some 60 countries in areas that include jungles, deserts, and urban regions. Together, Tony and Liam look at the possibilities of improving technology looking beyond metal detection to ensure demining is as efficient and safe as possible. Tony, Liam, thank you very much for joining me and Kate today. Tony, if we can start with you first of all, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your journey to Manchester and what kind of drew you to study at Manchester? Um, it's a little bit boring really. Um, I come from Manchester originally. I was born in Gorsell, not far from um, Old Trafford, which will probably become a bit more significant later on when we talk about the landmines work uh, with Sir Bobby Charlton. So Manchester was my local university and it, it, it is a very good university by anyone's standards. You know, so top 25 in the world so it was a sort of natural place to go. I was the uh, first in my family to, to go to university so um, the expectation stay local, work, 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 work my way through although at the time I went to university grants were freely available and the funding situation wasn't as sort of bad as it is now uh, for students as it were in terms of loans. Um, so I did my first degree and then my PhD at Manchester and I intended to leave. I got a job in industry working for um, a company that makes uh, mass spectrometers, um, shipped those globally. So uh, I, had, I had plans to sort of travel the world on the back of that. And, uh, and after about three or four years of doing that, I got a, a, uh, an advert sent through the post from one of my former lecturers saying you should apply for this. So uh, and it was her job. She was retiring. And she, her background was in instrumentation and they were looking to fill the post in sort of sensors and instrumentation. So uh, I applied, I got it, uh, came to Manchester for, for a few years. Then I uh, left to um, go to uh, Lancaster. As a you know, good offer came along there. Um, and then when the universities merged again in, um, it was probably about 15 years ago when um, UMIST, as it was then, merged with the Victoria University to become Manchester, then uh, I got made an offer that I couldn't really refuse so I came back so it's it's always had that sort of gravitational pull so that's really my journey here um bit, bit of a boring one really it's not, not, not it's moved not away from uh, <laughs> far, far from home as it were but uh, with, with, with the university as good as Manchester right on your doorstep you know like I say it's got that strong gravitational pull you know why go somewhere else was it always electrical engineering that you were interested in from as a youngster uh not not particularly no I I, um, I did maths further maths and physics at A level um um, so when I was choosing a degree course, I didn't. I think I chose electronics, electrical engineering. Uh, I was always interested in sort of physics and, and science and, and engineering, and I think I chose it because of um, um, lack of anything else to choose, which is not not not, not unusual when you're 18 because you, you just simply don't really know what these subjects involved. And uh, yeah, I landed on my feet. It was a it was a lucky choice because I ended up in electronics, and electronics glues glues many systems together. So you end up working with mathematicians. Um, 
physicists, we've worked with food scientists, we've worked with medics, yeah, you name it. We've, you know, most, most of the major technical professions we've worked with um, because there's always a need for that sort of um, instrumentation, electronic <coughs> systems, you know, the sensing that glues the you know, many systems together. So, yeah. Liam, what about you? Can you tell us about your journey to Manchester? Yes, certainly. So my journey to Manchester is probably substantially different to uh, what you've just heard from Tony there. So um, I had a fairly strange situation uh, when I was weighing up my decision about where to come to university. Uh, In the year before I came to university, when I was weighing up where to come, I I was actually dragged out of a a AS-level maths exam with gangrene of the appendix and unfortunately missed all of my AS-levels. Uh, which found that I was basically applying to university with no AS levels whatsoever and having to sit two years worth of exams at the end of the second year. Oh my goodness. Uh, which I know traditionally was what people did, but I did it at a time when you weren't really supposed to do all of those exams together. So um, I had a fairly chaotic uh, year before I came to the University of Manchester, or UMIST as it was then, because I found myself entertaining a whole host of different courses at a whole host of different institutions. Um, and really in the end it came down to two universities that I was weighing up uh, both uh, electrical engineering because that's that's always where I've had a strength always where I've had an interest Uh, but I was very much torn between uh, Birmingham and UMIST as it was then and I think what swung it for me in the end they're both both good universities but what swung it for me was was two things really firstly I I quite like the idea of being in a city for university, so I wanted to be in a university which is in the heart of the city, um, which which is obviously not the case for for Birmingham. So that that was a big draw. But also, um, you know, at the time I'd applied to to UMIS, the University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology, and that was a specialist university in the field of of science and technology and engineering as well. So uh, that that really, I think, was a big draw to to go somewhere with a good reputation and that that specialised in what I wanted to do. So was it a big move for you? Where did you? Yes. Yeah, so originally I'm from the Midlands. So um, you know we're not talking thousands of miles, but um, yeah, originally I'm, I was originally born in Stoke-on-Trent and then spent uh, seven or eight years there, and then the next ten years just north of Coventry. Uh, so yeah, it was a fairly substantial move. It was a couple of hours, a couple of hours away. So uh, it was it was a big step. So. Because Birmingham would have been closer. Yes, no, undoubtedly, yeah. Yeah, Birmingham would have been closer. It's, it's still still far enough away that it wasn't necessarily commutable, but um, so that wasn't necessarily a factor. And you know, I think I'd have I'd have been at the university wherever I was. I've I've been resident there, um, but certainly I think you know that that didn't really play much of a factor in the end. I think it was it was more the idea of being in the middle of a city and, and you know mm-hmm. being somewhere which which did what I wanted to do as a speciality. So you say electrical engineering was an interest was that did that come from sort of tinkering when you were younger or yes yes although tinkering uh back then was probably a little bit more dangerous than it is now (laughs) so so now we like to encourage fairly safe tinkering we we have you know things like the raspberry pi and things that people can buy and they can play with uh whereas yeah i was i was mostly being uh, discouraged from sticking fingers in plug sockets and things like that so so, although i should stress i was quite young at that age that wasn't the sort of thing i was doing in my teens um but no i mean i'd I'd always had i'd always had an interest in, in electrical engineering and uh, in, in computing as well and that was uh, I think mostly enabled from from my family really I mean I, I'd always had a natural interest in science um, and that was very much encouraged by my parents my siblings and you know they, they sort of nurtured that curiosity um, and I was quite fortunate although it's quite common now 
uh, back when I was at school, I was at a school that actually offered uh, electronics as a subject. So traditionally, I think most schools at the time would have offered science, so sort of traditional science, physics and the like. Um, so that was opened up to me at the age of 14, I think it was, when I started to study electronics. And I was able to carry that on through through A-level as well. So um, I suppose, unlike uh, Tony's experience, I, I kind of had this straight away and I knew this was something that I liked doing, something that I could do, something that I had a, a skill for. And when it came to, you know, making the application to university, although, you know, I was I found myself with a very troublesome year before I came here in terms of uh, the application process, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew where my strengths were there. Oh, good. Yeah, came to Manchester because of gangrene. That's yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 that's that's, that's, that's an unusual one, yeah. <laughs> so, Tony, you've touched on this a little bit, but what, yeah. what made you both kind of want to stay and forge careers at the university where you studied? And, and what's that like to kind of be a student and then end up kind of working here? Um, well, what made us stay and what made me come back uh, was probably opportunity. It's uh, Manchester's a very big university. It's, uh, it's a sort of place where it's easy to attract industrial partners. They can see the, you know, they can see the strength and depth of uh, facilities and uh, expertise and research. It's a, it's, you know, it's a big, it's a big place. So in terms of, um, in terms of what you need to get a research activity going, you need, you need funding, you need people, you need ideas. Uh, you know, you need a team, you need facilities, you, know, you need, but you need external contacts. And, you know, Manchester's provides a very fertile ground for that uh, in the sense that uh, uh, when, you, when, you, when external, uh, external companies want to approach you, you, know, you, you don't have to go out and sell yourself too much. So over the years, it's been very easy to sort of build relationships with lots of different companies in different sectors, um, uh, working in a whole variety of different areas, uh, applying, particularly applying electromagnetics, which is what we do, um, electromagnetic sensors. So it, it's it's largely been driven driven by that um, over, the, over, over the last fifteen years. That's really why I came back here, um, just for that research power, uh, and uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's certainly delivered on that. Um, so there's there's lots of opportunity here, and I think uh, Manchester's also a fairly dynamic entrepreneurial place. If you want to do something, if you can make the case and you can get uh, you know you can convince people to do it, then you can you know there's not that many people standing your way. You know most people will want it to happen. You know, so it's got that old adage, you know, this is Manchester, we do things differently. And yeah, maybe there's a bit of truth in that, you know. It's good to hear. How about you, Liam? Um, well, I mean, essentially, I, I would obviously echo pretty much all of what Tony said there in terms of the, the university and, and the, the ability that it has to, to sort of help help bring opportunities in terms of its size and its scale. Um, on a on a personal note, though, it wasn't necessarily my intention to stay and, and forge a career here. Uh, all the time I was here as an undergrad, uh, my sort of end goal, if you will, was to to come out and to follow a traditional industrial route, maybe go through uh, research and development. And uh, to be completely honest, I think when when I came through the doors of, of this university all those years ago, I wasn't even necessarily aware that it would be a possibility to carry on and, and forge a career here in, in the capacity that I do now. Uh, that was something that sort of got opened up to me in the in the course of my undergraduate studies. Um, I was exposed to various projects, and uh, it was actually through uh, a project that um, that Tony actually supervised uh, me for. Me. <laughs> <laughs> so back in two thousand and six, I think it was. I think I was. Um, well, in fairness, it was randomly assigned a, a project with uh, with Tony uh, in an area of, of electronics, which was, uh, let's say, my least favourite at the time. Uh, so <laughs> I've never been a fan of electromagnetism. Uh, so it was an interesting one to be assigned a project in that area. 
Um, but really, that's where I first started to, to, to see the opportunities that were available in a university. And I you know, started to work on industrial-led projects. And um, that's when it sort of started to click together. And I thought, oh, you know, this is, this is something that I can actually do in a university. You know, I don't need to be in a company to do research and development. I don't need to be uh, in a specific field. Uh, as a lot, of the reasons, a lot of the things that Tony's just said, we collaborate with a diverse range of different companies, diverse range of different fields. And so uh, seeing that from, from an undergraduate point of view uh, really enabled me when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. So um, there was, there was, it sort of clicked together with an, with an opportunity for a PhD. And then um, obviously from then things just sort of ballooned from there. So in, in terms of uh, building a research career here and, and now as a lecturer. So it's been a bit of an interesting, interesting few years. So. We wanted to get and talk to you because we both heard you speak about your work and research in landmine detection. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, certainly, yes. So um, we come from a, from a background of, of a very diverse range of different, uh, different applications. So we, we work in, in sort of a general field of what we call electromagnetic sensing. So we use electromagnetism for a lot of different reasons, uh, a lot of different applications. One of the uh, applications that we were looking at was in security, so uh, screening people for metallic threats. Um, and off the back of that and off some of the success we'd had with that, we were, we were approached uh, about the possibility of, of applying the, the, the technology that we developed and the methods that we developed in security. And they said, you know, can you do this to find, to find landmines? And um, of course, the initial feeling when someone says, you know, can we find landmines with this technology is, well, you know, can't we, can't we already do that? I mean, you know, there are already landmine detectors and, you know, we've, people have been finding landmines for years. Um, but interestingly enough, it's not until you sort of dig under the surface that you realise that it is a problem which can be hugely aided from uh, the sorts of things that, <coughs> excuse me, that we're doing here at the university. So understanding the physics of, of what's going on and, and rather than just building a detector, actually trying to add some intelligence to that as well. So um, in, terms of, in terms of our research in that area, that's, that's pretty much what we're trying to do. So we're taking um, what's, I suppose, commonly known as conventional metal detection and adding a degree of intelligence to it whereby um, in terms of the signal processing that we use um, we essentially turn that to what we call metal characterization so not necessarily something that goes beep when it finds metal but more something that when you found a target buried in the ground you're actually having some information about what that target is without having to excavate it and that's sort of where the characterization comes in. Yeah, so there's, there's sort of a, a, a bit of a story with a landmine detection because uh, I think most when we talk to most people, what immediately jumps into their mind is sort of pictures of Lady Diana and the uh, and the uh, TV footage of her um, in a minefield in Angola in you know back in I guess it'd be eighties, uh, late eighties now, uh, and the um, and the, the the call to action for the world to do something about this, which sort of led to the. Uh, uh, international campaign to ban landmines and the landmine treaty, which has you know been an enormous step forward. I mean, pe most people recognise how abhorrent these these weapons really are, um, but there's still a huge legacy in the world, and there's a big movement now called the Landmine Free uh, 2025 in in initiative to try and rid the world of landmines uh, by 2025. Which, of course, it's an ambitious goal, and uh, you know, a lot of countries are, have signed up to that, and they're uh, very committed, and there are, there are major steps forward. So. Um, 
with our background in doing electromagnetics uh, for inspection and particularly for security, we had connections with various security companies and so on that we were doing that. And I was always aware of the, um, the landmine application area, but I was aware that it, it wasn't something you could just sort of dabble in. in. You had to be connected up with the right people. And uh, it was really a chance approach um, that was facilitated when uh, Sir Bobby Charlton went on a trip with, with, uh, to, with Manchester United to, I think it was Cambodia, saw the problem. And he met up with uh, the Mines Advisory Group, uh, which are based in Manchester, uh, Nobel Prize winners for their contribution to the, uh, to, to the, the Landmine Ban Treaty. And it was, that was a bit of a facilitator for us because we, we met with Sir Bobby, people from MAG, um, and we, we were then looking to see could we adapt some of the techniques that we were using on um, metal detection to make metal detection smarter, to make metal characterise so you can find what type of metal you deal with, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll come, we'll probably come back to that later on because that's quite important. And so that, that, that sort of developed from there, and we, we, we were then involved in a sort of movement of people. Um, we had a particular direction we wanted to pursue in terms of trying to make the detector smarter and just try and move that, that technology forward. You know, there is, there is a, a big industry of companies that make these detectors and do that very well. Um, they're largely driven by... Um, the, 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 the military market, which is of course huge, that's why you know detectors are primarily you know um, de developed and innovated. You know, driven immediately by the military need and the, the military budgets are uh, huge. And what the humanitarian community get are really the sort of the you know the spin-off developments from that. So what we wanted to do was really try and refocus that a little bit and you know mm -hmm. apply the, uh, the you know the, these technologies and try and hone them and um, make them a bit a little bit more widely available. So uh, we talked about what we do on metal detection, uh, trying to make metal detection smarter using you know lots of different frequencies, being smarter about how we excite and you know take take measurements from them, and try and get them the most most data we can get from the ground as it were, try and reject the effects of the ground because the ground itself is magnetic that causes problems, uh, in some cases, yeah. called uncooperative ground. The uh, the trend um, towards the late 90s uh, was to combine metal detectors with ground penetrating radar, and there was a, a couple of big big initiatives. You know, a lot of governments were putting huge amounts of money into developing systems to do that, and two systems emerged for that. Uh, very successful systems, uh, Mind Hound in the UK, and a system called HDMITS. It's got a lovely ring to it, that, that name <laughs> in in the US. Um, and uh, but some of that, you know, the technology of combining radar and metal detection is sort of well proven now and, and it's still just filtering its way into the field you know a couple of weeks ago we saw it in use in Cambodia and um, you know it's, it's, it's very effective at dealing with false, false positive indications uh, but it's still not you know it still could be more widely de deployed it's very expensive you know and um, um, the, the know-how to build the radar in particular is uh, you know confined to just a few companies and a few you know, you know leading research labs you know, so we've had a sort of learning curve to climb in doing that we've had some excellent help uh, with some you know, um, very eminent visitors and people that joined our group along the, along the way to help us with it so it's not, it's not, it's not something we've just done ourselves as it were. Mm -hmm. yeah. So is Manchester sort of at the centre of this at the moment? Are we doing something? Uh, no, no, I wouldn't. No, there's communities all around the world. I wouldn't. Right. I, wouldn't I wouldn't claim any particular. You know, um, um, there's very good groups all around the world. Um, we're not the only ones that do uh, smart metal detection and uh, trying to you know characterise. You know, there's a couple of teams that we work with. Um, there's good teams in the states that we we know of. We particularly work with. Uh, there's a very good team at Zagreb that we've uh, had links with for many years. Uh, teams in. Um, in uh, Finland, so yeah, uh, no um, ground penetrating radar. That community is probably a lot more di di diverse, um, spread around the world. Um, 
Uh, we have you know, obviously links with groups in the UK and, and, and other places. Yeah. I guess it's a kind of all-in approach, isn't it? This is a really important humanitarian issue. We all yep. need to work together. Mm. I like that. It's really yep. good. Yep. Yeah, yeah. With with demining, I think it's as much about there not necessarily being one specific tool to solve demining as well. So you do need that breadth of expertise in terms of who you collaborate with and, and where they will be. So mm-hmm. it's not just about necessarily, as well as we see from the idea that we have metal characterization and ground penetrating radar, uh, quite often it's, it's a question of more than one tool to do the job. And what's the what's the hope for the future of demining, and how far away do you think we are from from kind of a landmine-free world? It's a big well, question. The, the drive <laughs> is twenty twenty-five, uh, and that's that's the current goal. And you know, um, I think most people in uh, humanitarian demining community sort of recognise that that's very ambitious. Um, and it's good to have ambitious goals, though, and we need to be driven by that. Um, the, uh, detecting technology is. Just, just, just it's not about. It's not. It's not really about detection on its own. Detection is only really part of the part of the process. It, it's, it's it's a very pivotal part, uh, but it's not the entire process. Um, you know, the ground's got to be prepared. It's got to be cleared of vegetation in some parts of the world. You know, obviously, and then um, you detect it. And then once you detect things, you've got to decide what you do with them. Uh, you've got the you know the ground's got to be excavated. So there's a whole process that follows. And detection's just the bit in, just one bit in the middle. But one of the key things with detection is if you just use metal detection, and you know the, the, the demining industry has been driven by a very simple formula for many years, uh, no metal equals no mines. And that's largely because most of the deployed mines uh, have, um, no metal, have uh, small amounts of metal in them that are detectable. So if you remove all the metal, you can be certain that you've removed all the mines, if, if you, you know, assuming that you know that there's been no metal mines used. Uh, and you know that formula is changing in recent years with the, the de- deployment of IEDs, and they've been you know they they, they they've gone through generate they, they've gone through um, rounds of innovation to take the metal out of them and make them very de- very de- very difficult to detect for obvious reasons. Uh, and so, so the problem's sort of morphing. Um, but for a lot of open field sites, if you get rid of the metal, you get rid of the mines. Um, so if you if you just detect metal, then you'll detect you know where where people have been, you'll find lots of metal. You know people leave metal crap behind them all all, all around. And if it's been a conflict site, you'll you'll find all the fragmentation and shell casings, uh, you know bits of shell casings and um, bullets and you know. So if you just detect metal, you'll be digging up a lot of stuff which is not dangerous. You know. So uh, the the big push is to separate between the the innocuous, the safe metal, which you know, you know, and uh, determine if you do get metal indication, is it then a mine? You know, so being able to characterise the metal and being able to combine that with radar to say, yeah, it's a piece of metal and it's surrounded by a big, big lump of plastic, uh, and so therefore it's very dangerous and you have to treat it carefully from all the in- innocuous stuff. Then uh, it is uh, helps productivity enormously. So it's not just the metal detection; it's how you build the metal detection into the um, into the demining procedures as well. Uh, and over the years, with dual mode detectors, we've seen procedures change that, that are much faster than the traditional, you know, work down a lane uh, from from the, from the end inwards into the field. Now the lanes tend to be worked. The most efficient ways tend to be worked from the side of the lane uh, in, into the field uh, in, in parallel, and that can be a lot faster. So we've seen demining rates with these types of techniques increase by an order of magnitude over the last decade or so. So you know we need to go keep going in that direction. Mm. Um, but like Liam said, it's not just it's not just about electromagnetics. Uh, you know that's not the only way of detecting mines. It's the best way. It's the most proven way in the field so far. But uh, you know, and believe me, people have spent hundreds of millions, billions, governments have put into finding the golden bullet to finding uh, the silver bullet into finding uh, ways of detecting mines for military purposes. 
Uh, they've thrown every, you know, you, you name a physical principle and people have had a go at trying to use it to dissect minds. Uh, but we've, you know, in, in the field, electromagnetics is still the most effective way at the moment. Hopefully, you know, maybe that will change. Yeah. What's it like to work um, within a research area that has such a significant impact on, on you know, it's life-changing? I'm assuming you didn't anticipate kind of having this kind of role. Well, I mean, the, the, the impact agenda is slightly different. I mean, you, you only have impact when people start, when the, the mining community are fielding large numbers of your detectors uh, or, or companies have taken them on and made them. Uh, so at the moment, you know, we can't say we're having impact. You know, we're, the, re the research we're doing is uh, is moving towards that, of course. Uh, but you know, if you don't have the know-how, if, if it, and if that know-how isn't widely dis disseminated, uh, if more companies, if more of the detector companies knew how to make radars, for example, uh, that changed the market dynamics a little bit. So you don't have the impact until that happens, and that that process takes a decade or two. So in in terms of um, landmine detection, we look at the impact that we're having. That doesn't feature on. The sort of the, you know, when, when we list from our group what impact we're having, that's not on our list. There's about six or seven things higher on our list that ha are having impact, which we, we which we'd claim well ahead of landmine detection. But you know, if we have this interview in five years' time, ten years' time. I'd hope that landmine detection is very much on that list. You know, um, and all the spin-offs that we'd get from knowing how to detect things in the ground better. You mm -hmm. know, not 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 just for detecting, not 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 just to to deal with this particular <coughs> horrible problem. Mm -hmm. So what are the other kind of interdisciplinary areas of your research? So we, we work quite we, we work quite a lot with on uh, on area known as non-destructive testing, um, and this is uh, making sure components don't fail in service, uh, and also making sure that they're manufactured carefully. So in you know it's, um, it's some of the successes you know you, the successes in the non-destructive testing industry are all around us. You don't notice them because you know we 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 get in, we get into cars. We assume that they won't fall apart. Bits won't break off. You know that, that's partly you know because these industries are mature we know we can find cracks we in, in, in defects in material in, in components uh, we know we know we can um, engineer the components and materials properties to get what they should be uh, planes don't fall out of the skies you know where things like metal fatigue get understood and you know and, and, the, and the corresponding failure mechanisms for things like carbon fiber re reinforced plastics which are now widely used in planes so you know, that, that, that area is um, yeah, so that's an area we, we, we work in. Um, you know, we've got many industrial parts. I wouldn't like to list them because I'm not sure I can plug, plug names of companies right now. But, you know, <laughs> from the rail sector to nuclear to we've worked a lot with steel steel production, uh, putting uh, these these non-destructive testing sensors actually into places like steel mills um, online. So they're, they're doing non-destructive testing as the products, as the material's being made. And a big push we've got at the moment now is not just to look for defects, but look look at the microstructure of the material and do non-destructive testing. You know, is the microstructure right? Um, is it is it engineered? Um, you know, and the reason that that's important is um, one of the big pushes over the last few years, over the last few decades, has been to make cars lighter. And one of the reasons cars are lighter is because the steel in them has got more advanced, and uh, there's much more sophisticated steel microstructures used. There's dozens of different types of steel used in cars, and that's all you know. It's been driven by the steel industry. So all that sort of stuff, all that sort of impact is, you know, hidden to the public. They don't, they don't see it, but it's, you know, it's happening now. And we work in other areas. Uh, you know, Liam will tell you about a project that he's been driving on, um, on detection of meteorites in the Antarctic at the other, uh, you know. So it's uh, across the across the board. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yes, Liam, do tell us about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, 
essentially it's yeah it's, it's one of one of a number of different things that are sort of spun out if you will from our, our main themes of research often along the way as we're going building sensors and instrumentation we soon realize that you know this could potentially be applied to other areas and it's we have along the way looked at you know inspection of biological tissues and things like that using the same sorts of technologies but uh, yeah the, the interesting the interesting case is uh, probably when the colleagues in the Department of Maths here at the University of Manchester uh, came and knocked on our door and said, um, "You know, can you can you put this across one of your metal detectors?" And uh, what what they handed us was an was an iron rich meteorite. So it's a it's a meteorite from the uh, essentially the core of a planetoid, um, which of course it gives an enormous signal because we're building landmine detectors that are trying to find one gram of metal, and then someone hands you two hundred grams of iron, and you get an enormous signal from it. So we said, "Oh, great, yeah, we can find that, no problem." And then he said, okay, would it work at minus 40 degrees? And you think, oh dear, okay, this is, <laughs> this is getting a bit more complicated. And then it soon becomes, can we drag that across a sheet of ice at 15 kilometers an hour? And then it becomes, actually it'll be bumping around a lot. And then you find out it's gonna be taken to the remotest part of the world. So um, it's a project we've been working with for a couple of years. It's, it's essentially based on our experience with metal detection uh, more than metal characterization. But we have essentially been spinning out that technology to, to ruggedize it for probably one of the most hostile natural environments that we have on Earth, mm -hmm. really. And so that's a system that we've, we've essentially built from scratch. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't kind of had any kind of external, um, external support for that in terms of uh, industrial collaboration. Uh, I should acknowledge uh, that it's been taken with the British Antarctic Survey's expertise, but it's been, been designed and fabricated uh, here at the University of Manchester. And so that's a system which is now actually, um, well, it, it, the system is physically in Antarctica now, <coughs> excuse me, um, and it's, it's going to be deployed for a two-month uh, fields uh, deployment across the Antarctic uh, summit, which is uh, across uh, November and December of this year. The idea being to try and solve a mystery of uh, why there aren't many iron meteorites found on the continent of Antarctica. Um, I don't know if we're going a bit off piece to talk a bit more about that. No, carry on, please do. Um, yeah. Well, this this is a, uh, a kind of mystery which is uh, in the natural world, which is that um, there are two main types of meteorites. I wouldn't like to say there's only two, otherwise the meteoricists will probably get cross with me. But there are two two main types. You've got iron meteorites and stony meteorites. So iron is essentially from the core, where the heavier elements tend to be. Stony is from the crust of, of planets and planetoids. And... Typically, you would expect about 5% of meteorites that fall to the ground to be iron, iron-rich in content. And they fall with equal probability across the globe, so you can find meteorites anywhere, but they're more typically found in deserts or in Antarctica. The main reason being there's very little human activity there. So if you came across a meteorite in Manchester, you would be quite reasonable to suspect that it's just an everyday rock rather than a meteorite because there's been so much human activity here. Um, but in a desert, in Antarctica, that's not necessarily the case. Antarctica has the benefit that um, obviously you have a visible contrast with the ground. So the, the, the meteorites themselves are dark, they're blackened, um, the ground is white. But also the, the, the physics, the, the ice flow dynamics of, of how the ice is, is moving means that meteorites are sort of pushed to what they call a meteorite stranding zone. So they, they fall to the ground, they're essentially buried, and over many, many years they, they flow with the ice and they get pushed up to the surface when they when they come up against rocks underneath the surface and basically uh, Antarctic mountains. 
as they're pushed to the surface, surface they uh, are in what we'd call these meteorite stranding zones. So from a, a sort of a meteoricist point of view, you can, if you've identified a meteorite stranding zone, you will find dozens and dozens of meteorites in the same place. The mystery comes from the fact that only 0.5% of meteorites in Antarctica are iron rich. So there's an order of magnitude different, but the overwhelming majority of meteorites are found in Antarctica. So um, Dr. Jeff Evert from the uh, Department of Mathematics proposed a model that suggested they might be hidden beneath the surface of Antarctica, beneath the surface of the ice, which of course is not somewhere where people have conventionally looked when there's been a wealth of meteorites available on the surface. Um, but also it's, it's the vastness of the scale of the problem. You're talking about many, many thousands of square kilometers to search. Um, and trying to do that underground uh, in an area where essentially you would have to excavate rather than send something across the ice to find it presents an enormous challenge. So this, this, is, a, this is an example of where we've, we've sort of taken this technology and we've taken the expertise and the know-how that we have uh, from the, the other kind of research areas that we've done and the, the research experience that we have and essentially taken that in a very different direction. Wow, wow, <laughs> that's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> It's very interdisciplinary. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've got a PhD, one of our PhD students is flying off to the Antarctic in a couple of weeks' time. Yes. <laughs> yes, he's, as you do. You know, he's quite uh, he's literally going. Yeah, he's quite literally going where nobody has gone before. Yeah, with, uh, literally, with, yeah. yeah. Wow. So he's spending two months in the remotest of Antarctica with this system that we've built, and it's it's a very very large system. I should stress, it's we're not talking handheld here. Uh, it is uh, approximately uh, 10 metres long and about 5-10 metres wide and it's towed by a skidoo so uh, it needs to be flown and uh, very carefully assembled in, in situ in, in Antarctica. It all needs to be demountable and fit on tiny aircraft, aircraft the size of Land Rovers essentially. Uh, so we've got to fly all this equipment down there, all of the people down there and everything that they'll need. Uh, for the two months that they're going to be there. So it's an enormous effort to get that technology into the field. Yeah. And of course, we're just now hoping that we can solve the mystery of where the meteorites are. So of course, what will be the nice outcome from that would be to discover that they do exist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to go on to our last question. It is a question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast. Um, we have a time machine vehicle. Please don't ask me how it works. I won't be able to describe the science of it. No, Where or what time, past or future, in Manchester would you go? Okay, I suppose it depends um, Depends what hat I have on when I'm answering this question. Um, probably the scientist and the engineer in me would probably like to go back to about 70-ish years ago when they were doing the early computation work here, the likes of the Manchester baby. Uh, I'd just love to see how all that came together, uh, especially knowing now that you know we carry carry around with us computers that are many many orders of magnitude more complicated in our pockets in the form of a smartphone, just to see how how we had a computer that was basically the size of a large room that kind of set the set the uh, wheels in motion for that. Um, probably though maybe a bit more selfishly as the non-engineer, I think I'd quite like to revisit the days of the late 80s to late 90s uh, when the music scene in Manchester was a very interesting interesting time. I must say that probably is one of the uh, one of the also significant drivers that did bring me to Manchester that Birmingham didn't quite have to offer. So mm. it's, uh, yeah, I Indeed. think that I'd be quite like, quite like to see that again. Not too keen on Black Sabbath then. <laughs> <laughs> No, not to say there's no but there's no good music from Birmingham, but of course, you know the the the, the, the momentum was definitely up here at that time. 
Thanks, Tony. Um, I'm not sure I, I, I would actually, because uh, if you were confined to just staying in, staying in Manchester, going back more than about 100 years in Manchester, it wouldn't have been a particularly nice place to have been, uh, really. Um, we had, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, we had massacres. Uh, a few hundred years before that, you know, it had been it'd been quite rural. Um, anything up to, you know, my grandparents' generation and your life expectancy was pretty dire. Um, and also, you know, I, th I think we've probably been, we're, we're probably lucky to have been born just at the right time and in, 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 in reasoning in the right place as well, because uh, uh, up until, you know, this point in human history, you, you know, if you're born anywhere, you'd be, you know, unless you were very lucky, you, you, your life expectancy would be short. Uh, life would be pretty traumatic. Uh, if you didn't die violently, you'd probably die of either starvation or disease. Um, so we were incredibly lucky. I mean, it's not that 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 luck isn't spread evenly at all. You know, even you know, you only have to walk through the streets of Manchester to see the amount of deprivation around and the amount mm. of people that have to live rough. So even even here, and then if you look around the world, most you know, it's still not the case even now that people go without starvation. You know, famines are still common. You know, there's huge uh, protests around the world. In money spread very une evenly. Um, so you know. But it has been a great time, great place to have been been born in terms of you know this is the white heat of scientific and engineering uh, revolution. You know this is the first time in human history that's happened. You know, mm -hmm. and we're right in the middle of it. You know, adding to it, it's, it's fantastic. Um, so if I, if, I, if I got into a time machine, uh, I'd probably like to just ro roll it forward a hundred years, just really for selfish reasons. You know, we face human huge problems, and you know we. Part of our work's on de detecting landmines, and that's that's sort of characteristic of some of the problems that we have. Uh, it's symbolic of them in some respects, um, but you know we we've, we've got many threats: um, nuclear war, um, starvation, population growth. You know, uh, food supply, um, energy. When, when, I, when I was younger, oil was running. You know, it was clear that oil would run out, and we had a couple of hundred years left of it. And, you know, that that was going to be the end of our civilization if we didn't find alternatives. Uh, you know that's that's changing. That, that that equation's changing, but it's still a long, long way to go. Um, water supply, and you know, over the last 20, 30 years, your climate change has been added to that list. Um, mm -hmm. And this, we, we, you know, this, most of the planet, you know, most of the people live, you know, on, on, live on the on the border of poverty. You know, they can't guarantee they're gonna they're gonna have secure food. Um, so you know, we're still in you know, despite all this progress, we're still still in desperate times, really. Uh, and it'd be nice just to roll forward a hundred years, just for the sake of my own kids and grandkids, to, to see if it actually pans out properly. And we, and we, this, this, isn't, this isn't just one glorious bubble that just suddenly bursts and we destroy ourselves and we actually move forward on it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice to know it was, it, it's going to be all right. It'd be a shame if it wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it really would be a bad shame if it wasn't. You know, but maybe I'd just like to tick that box and you know, be a bit more reassuring. I like that. Yeah. You're our first guest who've gone to the future yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. 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 Great, excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. This has been a really great conversation and, and I look forward to hearing more about the research that's coming out. Thank you, thank you. And um, you did speak and we have a video of that. Um, so, you know, we'll pair those up so listeners of the podcast can also watch um, that really yeah. fascinating lecture that you did for us. Thank uh, you. Yeah, great. Back. great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Your Manchester Stories. Please rate, review and subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you listen. If you are a graduate of the University of Manchester, you can connect with us at your.manchester.ac.uk. 
This podcast is produced by Kate Bradbury and Haley Jane Sims on behalf of the Division of Development and Alumni Relations at the University of Manchester. The music for this podcast was supplied by Blue Dot Sessions. <laughs>